This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast. Episode 321, MacArthur, I Shall Return. Last time, MacArthur and his oversized entourage had escaped the closing ring around Corregidor Island, and having gone some 350 miles by PT boat, they still had another 1,500 to go. This journey would be finished up by air travel, that is, until the general got a look at the lone B-17 out of the four that had tried to make the journey. He had no wish to risk his life and that of his family in this bucket of bolts that seemed to have more bullet holes than bolts. However, the Japanese, who had already landed on Mindanao to the south, were coming for Del Monte Airfield, fast, and were only some 30 miles away. Like the departure from his island headquarters, it was now or never. Right away, MacArthur sent a message to General George Marshall, U.S. Army Chief of Staff, about his shoddy reception, though it's possible his screams made it to Washington without the aid of a radio. Either way, Marshall spoke to Admiral King, Chief of Naval Operations and now Commander-in-Chief of the U.S. Fleet. The latter sent a message to Vice Admiral Herbert Leary, the commander of all U.S. Naval Forces in Australia and he realized his mistake by sending beat-up planes the first time around. This time, he responded with three B-17s that were in much better condition. While MacArthur waited for his air chariots to arrive, good news came in the form of his missing fourth PT boat, PT-35, skippered by Ensign Acres. PT-35 had reached the rendezvous point just after MacArthur had left. It had been running only on one engine, 
but that one engine got them through, which made the next part melancholy. When the submarine permit showed up and had to take on Acres' crew, there was no choice but to sink PT-35 with its one tough motor. At least MacArthur's staff was back together. Two days went by, which left MacArthur to alternate between looking south in the sky for his B-17s and then bringing his chin down to look south along the road to see if enemy troops were approaching. A report said their lead elements were only 30 miles away. Of course, it's quite possible they did not know of the prize that awaited them at Del Monte Plantation near the airfield. However, on both mornings of MacArthur's wait, enemy bombers came to strafe and bomb the airfield and its surrounding buildings. The Americans' luck held as none of the general's team was injured. Finally, in the evening of March 16th, two B-17s landed. Like the first attempt, a third plane had to turn back due to engine trouble. It may be remembered that during the morning of the Pearl Harbor attack, several B-17s were coming into land, having come from the States. One of the lucky B-17s that made it safely down was piloted by 34-year-old First Lieutenant Frank Bostrom. That morning, he had put down on a golf course. Now, he was landing between two flares on a dirt patch, all in a day's work. Bostrom, flying the lead plane, was brought up to date. Namely, the general's entourage needed to get to Australia, and the beat-up plane of 2nd Lieutenant Harl Peace Jr., age 24, was not even being considered. Bostrom made some quick calculations and determined that all the passengers could be split between the two superior planes, provided that most of what those same passengers were carrying was left behind, except for a mat for young Arthur. All things considered, the general wanted to leave now, so Bostrom, his crew, and the crew of the other plane knocked back a respectable amount of coffee and then started their pre-flight checklist. By now, darkness had settled over Del Monte, so a flare was placed at the end of the strip by which the plane had to lift off. Soon the planes were in the air and all settled back for the long journey. The good news was that the seasickness was behind them. The bad news was that it was more than replaced by air sickness. As the Japanese-controlled Timor, about 350 miles northwest of Darwin, Bostrom gave it a wide berth, swinging east, but this added to their flight time. The hours ticked by. With the sun beginning to shine over Australia at the beginning of a new day, the end of this painful journey was in sight, until it wasn't. They were coming upon their target, Darwin, in northern Australia, until it was radioed to them that the small but growing port town was currently under attack. Again. To this, Bostrom chose to go around and past Darwin to land at Bachelor Field, an auxiliary location, some 50 miles south of the current air attack. The planes touched down at 9 a.m. March 17th and waiting for them, provided by Lieutenant General George Brett, the commander of all U.S. Army forces in Australia, were two twin-engine Australian National Airways DC-3, a much-improved way to fly. 
Not that the general, or Mrs. General, would take up the offer. As Jean told the aide, Sid Huff, never, never again will anybody get me into an airplane. And the general agreed. So MacArthur told Chief of Staff Sutherland to arrange cars to take them to Alice Springs, about 750 miles away, across the Tanami Desert. How this was an improvement over flying was not discussed. It was what the first family wanted, period. And yet, there is always a higher power. And in this case, that higher power was young Arthur. He had not done well during the flight to Bachelor Field, and the last thing he needed now was a drive across the desert. This was explained to the parents by Dr. Morehouse. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Mr. and Mrs. General decided to hop aboard the waiting planes, but there was more to the story that MacArthur did not know, and his trusty chief of staff, Sutherland, wasn't telling him. Another report had just come in that the Japanese were sending bombers to Bachelor Field from Timor. At the very least, the valuable DC-3s had to leave, and it would be preferable if the general was on board one of them. Hence, Sutherland got Dr. Morehouse to talk up young Arthur's, I'm sure, pale complexion and feelings of misery. Parental concern did the rest. Just after the lead DC-3 took off, enemy planes were over the dirt airstrip. It was a close-run thing, but MacArthur was left unaware. Fortunately, the trip to Alice Springs was smooth and uneventful, but that was as far as the first family was going, by air. To be sure, the rest of the Bataan gang, as they would be called, flew on south to Melbourne. However, the general, Jean, young Arthur, Achu, Sutherland, and Aide Huff and Dr. Morehouse took up residence in the town's only hotel. They would wait for a train, that was coming for them, from a town near Adelaide, located about 325 miles or 523 kilometers northwest of Melbourne, their goal. Indeed, the train was already on the way. As MacArthur and company waited on the train that morning of March 18th, he was visited by a just-arrived Patrick Hurley, a man who was just as humble and demure as the general, as in not at all. Anyways, he was bringing good news for the commander of Allied forces in Australia. 
Hurley had been Secretary of War in the last part of the Hoover administration. Now he was a Brigadier General, and George Marshall himself had sent Hurley to the Far East as his personal representative to examine the ways, if possible, of getting supplies to Bataan. And Marshall wasn't playing around. Hurley had come to this part of the world with $10 million in cash given to him by Staff Officer Dwight Eisenhower. The money was to be used to get supplies and charters to the Philippines, i.e. <coughs> modern pirates, to run the blockade. And going himself, Hurley was able to reach Luzon three times with supplies, but never with enough ships to really think about evacuation. The man had nerves of steel, and though the general might not have known about his latest adventures, he took the representative, who was about to become the American ambassador to New Zealand, at his word. Later in this same year, Hurley would be sent to the Soviet Union to be the first foreigner to visit the Eastern Front. From there, he would go to the Middle East, China, Iran, and Afghanistan. However, it was as FDR's representative that Hurley spoke to Stalin and was able to witness Marshal Zhukov's November 19th counterattack, Operation Uranus, at Stalingrad. It was this man, Patrick Hurley, who told the general that, back home, he was considered a national by-God hero. In fact, he was offering his own C-47 transport a military version of the DC-3, to take the general to Melbourne. MacArthur was flattered by this, but he and Jean stuck to their guns. They were grounded for the time being. One can only hope that being told he was considered a national hero back home had boosted the general's morale, for when he reached a transfer point to Rowie, still 137 miles short of Adelaide on the coast, he was given a metaphorical punch in the gut. Waiting for him was Lieutenant Colonel Richard Marshall, another aide, this one in charge of supplies and procurement, who had flown on ahead from Alice Springs to Melbourne. First, the good news. A private rail car was waiting to take the general the rest of the way. But the bad news. This was as many promises, direct or indirect or vague, as was given to MacArthur by the President and George Marshall about meeting up with a large force only to lead it back to Luzon, the lieutenant colonel had to report that currently there were no more than 25,000 American Army and Air personnel in the whole of Australia. There were three times that number back on Bataan. Then, no matter what MacArthur would have liked to scream to the skies, there were reporters waiting a few yards away, and they had some questions for the general. MacArthur, with only two sentences, was able to sound as if all was under control and, at the same time, put the ball back in FDR's corner. Quote, The President of the United States ordered me to break through the Japanese lines and proceed from Corregidor to Australia, for the purpose, as I understand it, of organizing the American offensive against Japan, a primary object of which is the relief of the Philippines. I came through, and I shall return. 
This sentiment, though shortened, would be given a few more times on the way to Melbourne. Thus the phrase, I shall return, entered into the American psyche like a much-needed balm on sun-blistered skin. In the evening of that same day, March 20th, the MacArthur train went through Adelaide, now only 500 miles west of Melbourne, along the coast. And within his private train, and among his own, the general allowed his gloom to emerge from within. It was time for MacArthur to think, and that meant pace. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. As the general's train rolled on, events across the Pacific were building into a perfect storm, a storm of confusing MacArthur with Mars, the Roman god of war. The one man, the only man, capable of pushing back and defeating the hated enemy. First, on March 17th in the United States, the War Department declared that MacArthur was being made the supreme commander of Allied forces in the southwestern Pacific as in Abdicom, was being resurrected, with the British taking all the territory west of Singapore and the Americans fighting to the east of it. However, no one was asking the question, why had Abdicom been deconstructed in the first place? And, for bonus points, what had changed all that much in the last few weeks? The answer, of course, was nothing, except MacArthur and what the American people needed who had already decided that he was the man of the hour, which was someone to emulate in the face of such odds. This was confirmed when Roosevelt, playing the game as well, said, Every man and woman in the United States admires with me General MacArthur's determination to fight to the finish with his men in the Philippines, but that every American, if asked where MacArthur could best serve his country, The answer was obvious, as the supreme commander of the whole Southwest Pacific. Certainly not on the Patan Peninsula. From there, the newspapers took over, just as FDR wanted them to, by saying MacArthur had held off the enemy on Patan, and he would do so in Australia and its surrounding waters. It didn't hurt that the average American knew next to nothing about Philippine geography and that Bataan was not the majority of Luzon. And it only went on from there that MacArthur had knitted together a tough Filipino fighting force that had stalled the Japanese attack on Luzon. In fact, the commanding enemy officer, General Homa, had committed suicide due to his disgrace of having failed to defeat 
the general's smaller force. He had not, and would soon make a reappearance in this story. And finally, it was up to those back in the States, the government and the workers on the assembly lines, to give MacArthur what he needed, so he could return, as he had proclaimed. MacArthur and company pulled into Melbourne at 9.30 a.m. on March 21st. But, as this was the beginning of MacArthur waging war against the Japanese and Washington's apparent stubbornness with supplies and men, his words were thought out beforehand. The general needed to make a splash, and he did. First, a battalion of the 43rd Engineers stood at attention along the tracks as an honor guard. Admiral Leary, commander of all American naval forces in Australia, and General Brett, along with three Australian officers, formed a welcome committee. They stood in front of what was to be the general's motorcade. Further, the route to the Menzies Hotel, where the Paton gang would take over the sixth floor, was worked out on a map. It was only three blocks away. But that didn't matter. In war, whether actual or political, a plan must be in place. MacArthur descended from the train and delivered a prepared speech to the gathered pressmen. First, he knew and greatly admired the Australian soldier from the Great War. They were courageous indeed, but more than courage was needed to win this war. The war effort needed, he needed, sufficient troops and materiel to meet the enemy. No general can make something out of nothing. My success or failure will depend primarily upon the resources which the respective governments place at my disposal. Then, allowing enough time for the photographers to take a few more photos, the general and his camp made for the hotel. The crowd waved and cheered as the general went by. Not that everything was bonza between the Yanks and Aussies. There might not have been enough American soldiers to take on the enemy of Luzon, but these same young men were successfully waging a more intimate war on the young lasses of Australia, while their menfolk were fighting and dying in North Africa, Singapore, and Java. And not to put too fine a point on it, but for all of the general's greatness, he did flee Bataan, and no one was expecting his men to somehow retake the Philippines. Still, the hope was for the future. They all had to just get through the here and now. So as MacArthur settled in, his war with the Japanese Empire and Washington was just getting underway. His one ace was that the American people loved him and believed in him, whereas the Aussies just needed him to be as good as he said he was. But back to the war with Washington. It would have crushed the general spirit, who was still licking his wounds, inflicted on Paton, if he had overheard the conversations of his superiors. First, Admiral Ernest J. King, Chief of Naval Operations, was working on a plan to cut straight across the Pacific to get to Tokyo. This did not include a detour through the Philippines. Next, FDR was hearing the I shall return phrase over and over, all over the place. The general should have said, we shall return, for that was the only way this was going to happen. 
Still, the political reality was that MacArthur was the people's choice in holding off the Japanese and retaking the Philippines. But the honest question in Washington and London was, how important was the Philippines in the larger overall view of the war? The Arcadia Conference had already decided that Europe would come first, and Admiral King had decided that the path to Japan was more important than the Philippines. Clearly, not everyone was going to be happy with this, and that not everyone looked to be MacArthur. But MacArthur's one saving grace, again, was his effect on the American people. Perhaps FDR's military aide, Brigadier General Edwin Pa Watson, had gone too far when he said MacArthur was worth five Army Corps. This was during the debate as to whether the general should be ordered to leave Corregidor, but since then, many young Americans had enlisted in the armed forces, and they called themselves the MacArthur men. But Washington was not quite done putting a shine on the general, which begged the question, what was the one thing that MacArthur's father had not achieved that was still open to his son? The answer was, of course, the Medal of Honor. Now, one could ask, should the Medal of Honor really go to a man whose claim to fame was having successfully escaped the enemy and had survived a rougher-than-usual boat ride? But that would be asking the wrong question, according to General George Marshall, for he was the one who got the ball rolling back in late January. The War Department had sent Chief of Staff Sutherland a message that it wanted to award the Medal of Honor to MacArthur, but also wanted to wait until the right moment to have the maximum impact on the American people. And they would need a reason. And when MacArthur arrived in Melbourne, Marshall sent a message to Sutherland saying, now was the time to ask. Hence, Sutherland sent the following earnestly recommend the immediate award of Medal of Honor to General MacArthur because such recognition of his services at this time would be particularly appropriate in view of his assumption of an international command that would certainly have a most beneficial effect here. This was not exactly what Marshall was asking for, but he would run with it nonetheless. This was forwarded to Secretary of War Henry Stimson, along with a note from Marshall, adding, This will meet with popular approval both within and without the armed forces, and will have a constructive morale, value, politics, and war. With this done, Marshall told Sutherland to pick the best time to have the U.S. Ambassador to Australia, Nelson T. Johnson, present the award which was on March 26th, as the Australian Prime Minister, John Curtin, would be giving a dinner in MacArthur's honor in Canberra, the capital. Ambassador Johnson read out the reason for the award, which was so stirring and flowery that it could have been written by the general himself. However, in a rare moment of, let's go with honesty, MacArthur semi-humbly thanked the man and when congratulations were sent from General Jonathan Wainwright, now in command of the resisting forces in Bataan, MacArthur replied, It was not I, but the gallant army which I commanded. 
So here was the general with his political stock raised to unheard heights. And yet, he had few soldiers, few planes, and few boats to command. And the question remained, where did his command area begin and end? Which would bring on a whole new enemy and war with the U.S. Navy. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, just want to take a moment and thank some new members and those who have donated to keep things going. It is much appreciated here. So, as far as the latest members who uh, get to listen to two extra shows a month, um, there is Robert Ahrens from White Lake, Michigan. Dana Simmons from La Vernia, Texas. Hope I said that right. Ethan Eddy from Alexandria, Virginia. Hey, Ethan, local boy. Nice to uh, nice to hear from you. Uh, thanks for the email. David Spear from is that Mandeville, Louisiana. Uh, Isaac Bresnick from Rancho Santa Margarita, California. Uh, so those are the latest members. Thank you very much, people. And as far as those who have donated, I have the name Davy. So, sorry, Davey, I guess my assistant, which is me, messed that up. So, Davey, thank you for the donation. And I find myself thanking Dana Simmons again because uh, they donated and um, became a member. Same thing with Ethan Eddy, donated and became a member. That is much appreciated. And another donation came from Clarence Quevedo. I hope I got that right. And just one more time, just want to thank Jason uh, Letcher, who ordered a Churchill mug, which was the last one I had, so I've ordered some more in case any of you want a Churchill mug. And if you have any questions about it or whatever, just shoot me an email to wwiipodcast at gmail.com. We can work out all the details. I'd be happy to do that for you. So I got a new batch coming in. So I will see you soon. With We're going to pick back up with the war in the Philippines. General Homa is getting his reinforcements. He is licking his wounds, as are the Americans, and they're running out of food, and the hostilities will begin anew. And so I'll get that to you as soon as I can. Take care, everyone. When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online, schedule package pickups through the dashboard, and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers, with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.